The introduction to Romans. By his own testimony, Martin Luther was unsaved, even though he held the professor of biblical he had the he had the position of professor of biblical theology at the University of Wittenberg, which is in Germany. In the spring of fifteen fifteen, Luther was given the assignment to teach two courses, one on Psalms and one on Romans. I don't know the man's name that assigned him those two courses. But it's not much of an exaggeration to say that the world has not been the same since. He taught Romans from Easter of 1515 until September of 1516, twice a week, on Mondays and Fridays at 6 o'clock in the morning. And if my understanding of how he presented that course is correct, that comes out to about 150 lessons on the book of Romans. And that's about what I think that we will do with our study as well. In preparing to teach the book of Romans, Luther began to appreciate the centrality of the truth of justification by grace through faith. Quoting Luther, he said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through his grace and sheer mercy, he justifies by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before, the righteousness of God that filled me with hate now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. And at a later time, Luther stated, the epistle to the Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or reread or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. God used Luther's study of Romans to launch the Protestant Reformation. It's not as though there was no one around who understood justification by faith during the 1500-year year period between Paul and Luther. I'm not implying that. I'm not implying that there, everybody during that period was unsaved. And not at all. There's truth that is presented in every generation. But at that time, the Roman Catholic Church had choked out the grace of the gospel, and it promoted instead a gospel of works, rather than one of grace through faith apart from works. You might, you might wonder why that could happen in light of passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or even Titus 3.5, which says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You might wonder how those verses could be in there, yet someone would come up with the theology, and, and have actually hundreds of thousands of people believe it, that salvation is not by grace through faith, but it's by works. Well, the answer is that very few people, except for the clergy, had access to the Scriptures back in those days. The Scriptures were available primarily in Latin, and the so-called common man didn't read Latin, and so was in no position to question the priest, much less the Pope. 
also complicating the situation was at that time that many of the popes were not even saved. It was a very political office at that point in history. So along came a man who was very flawed, but with the courage to match his faults, who looked at the scripture and said, in effect, we've been lying to the people. And he told them the truth. And he told them the truth in spite of the fact that his life was on the line almost every time he did it. It's one thing for us to stand and proclaim the truth in the United States of America today, and there may be some ridiculing, there may be some slander, there may be a few snide remarks made, but at least at this point nobody's being imprisoned and nobody's being executed for preaching the word, but that was a possibility for Luther, and he was God's man for the time. Some 223 years later, on the evening of May 24th, 1738, John Wesley went, he says, unwillingly to a society at Aldergate Street where Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans was to be read that night. Later, Wesley wrote about that night, about 8.45 p.m., when Luther was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley was used of God to found the Methodist Church and along with Whitfield to launch the evangelical revival of the 1800s. The book of Romans has been called the cathedral of the Christian faith. It's considered to be the book that contains the most in-depth theology in all of the Bible. Now, every book of the Bible contains theology, but the book of Romans is considered to contain the most in-depth theology in all the Bible. The Holy Spirit has been pleased to use the study of the book of Romans to change the lives of countless men and women. And as we study this book over the next, what will be a couple of years, that is my prayer for you and for me too, that God the Holy Spirit will be pleased to use the study of this great book to change our lives and to change it for the better. W.H. Griffith Thomas, a wonderful theologian who was one of the founders of Dallas Seminary, uh, and the reason you haven't heard probably of W.H. Griffith Thomas, unless you're a real super serious student of that period of history, is that he died right before Dallas Seminary opened. So Lewis Ray Chafer ended up having to do it by himself. But he stated that a thorough study of the Epistle of Romans is really a theological education in itself. Harold Honer was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, and perhaps you'll get to meet him someday. He's written several very important texts, and if at all possible, sometime in the next two years, I'm going to invite him down to give at least one of these lectures on Romans. But he said, to know Romans is to know Christianity. It is a detailed and systematic study of the Christian faith. William Tyndale, the great English reformer and translator, referred to Romans as the, most, as the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. He went on to say, following in his prologue to the Romans that he wrote in the 1534 edition of his New English Testament, no man can verily read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is choose, chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser 
things are found in it, so great treasures of spiritual things lieth hid therein. This book has been used of the Holy Spirit to seriously affect the spiritual lives of some really incredible people. And I would hope that it will affect ours that way as well. The circumstances of writing of the book of Romans. Following his conversion on the Damascus Road, which occurred probably around 34 A.D., in other words, shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, perhaps just a couple years, Paul preached in Damascus, and then he spent some time in Arabia, and then returned to Damascus. Next, he traveled to Jerusalem, where he meets briefly with Peter and James, and then he moved on to Tarsus, which evidently was his base of operations from which he ministered for about six years. So Paul was saved in his 30s, and, and throughout his 30s, he, he had a little public ministry, but most of it we know nothing about. He went back to his hometown and ministered right at home. Then in his 40s, in an invitation, in response to an invitation from Barnabas, he moved to Antioch of Syria, where he served for about five years from 43 to 48. And the way, the way it's helped me to remember some of these dates about Paul, assume Paul was, was born around the year zero. He was probably four years or so younger than our Lord. So when we say that, that he served in, in Antioch from 43 to 48, it's, it helps me to picture that he was between 43 and 48 years old when he does it. What I want you to see, and the reason I bring that up, is by the time Paul writes Romans, he's in the prime of his intellectual life. Yeah. I would like to think you're in the prime of your intellectual life when you're in your 40s, but, but most people would say it comes a little bit later. Anyway, that's when he went to Antioch. And then he and, ba- Antioch, Antioch, he and Barnabas then set out on their first missionary journey to Asia Minor. Remember, we studied that in the book of Galatians. And when he returned to Antioch, he writes the book of Galatians. So after his fish, first missionary journey, he writes one book, and that's Galatians. Then he goes to the Jerusalem Council, which we studied in Acts 15, and he took Silas and began his second missionary journey, which he took between 50 and 52 A.D. So now he's in his 50s, and he's on missionary journey number two. He goes through Asia Minor and on westward into the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. From Corinth, Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in around 51 A.D., and then he proceeded to Ephesus by ship and then back to Syria and Antioch. So he is between 50 and 52 years old. On his second missionary journey, there are two books that come out of that journey, and that is First and Second Thessalonians. It's easy to remember. There's one book that comes out of the first missionary journey, two out of the second. There'll be three out of the third. From there he sent, set forth on his third missionary journey, which he takes from the years 53 to 57, And passing through Asia Minor, he arrived in Ephesus, where he ministered for about three years, during which time he wrote 1 Corinthians. Finally, Paul left Ephesus and traveled by land to Macedonia, where he wrote 2 Corinthians in 56 A.D. And then he continued south and spent the winter of 56 to 57 in Corinth. And there he wrote the epistle to the Romans and sent it by Phoebe, to the Roman church in the spring of 57 A.D. After Paul writes Romans, and he probably wrote it, there's no way to know for sure, but we know that he was was only in Corinth at that time for maybe about three months. 
he probably wrote it over a three to four week period, which seems kind of interesting because we're going to study it over a couple of year period. But he writes it uh, during the winter. He writes it in a town that was giving him a real hard time. So I'm not saying even the, the circumstances of him writing it were necessarily that pleasant because remember the Corinthian church. It wasn't exactly the poster child church for, for purity in the ancient world. It wasn't the church of the Philippians. It wasn't the church at Philippi, a church that gave him very few problems at all. He writes this while he's living in a city full of people that were constantly giving him problems. I found that interesting background material. Paul then proceeds from Corinth by land clockwise around the Aegean Sea back to Troas in Asia where he boarded a ship and eventually reached Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Paul is arrested by the Jews and he's in prison and he spent a little time there in AD 57. So the same year, later the same year that he writes Romans, he goes back to Jerusalem and is imprisoned there. He is finally sent to Rome and arrives as a prisoner in Rome and ministers there for two years from 60 to 62. And it's during that time that he writes the prison epistles, one of which we have just studied, and that's the book of Philippians. So Romans was written before the book of Philippians was. But he also wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon at that time. The Romans did free Paul from his first imprisonment. And then he returned to the Aegean area. There he wrote First Timothy and Titus, and he experienced arrest again and suffered imprisonment in Rome a second time. And there he wrote Second Timothy, and then he was executed by beheading by the order of one of the worst excuses for a human being and a waste of oxygen that has ever walked the planet, a man named Nero. The reason I bring that up is Paul will talk in this letter about obeying legitimately authorized governmental authorities. And I want you to remember who was the emperor at the time that he writes that. Now, the founding of the Church of Rome. At the time Paul writes Romans, Rome was the capital of the civilized world. It was the cultural and the political center of the planet. There's an old saying, all roads lead to Rome. But as an old history professor of mine used to say, the Romans would have been offended at that. They built the roads. So the way they would have preferred to have it said was, all roads lead away from Rome. And those roads are very important with regard to the spread of the gospel because it's on these roads that Christian missionaries traveled with the good news of Jesus Christ. So even though the Romans were a pagan people, the Romans weren't a Christian people at all. There were Christians that lived in Rome and, and that lived under the Roman banner. But they themselves, Nero was hardly a, a believer. But he oversaw, and he and the other emperors, oversaw the, the laying down of these roads, which God used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. A bit of irony there. The Romans were a very proud people. They were very civilized in one respect, and they were very cruel. In another respect, you didn't want to go to war with the Romans and lose the war. They wouldn't spend their tax dollars to rebuild your country after they defeated you in battle. In fact, they would spend their tax dollars to take away every stone that stood where your city used to stand and put dust back on it to make sure, in the case of Carthage, for example, that nobody ever gave them a hard time again. 
they were a little different. They either killed you or took you into slavery. If you were one of the fortunate ones, you were taken into slavery. So the Romans were a, an intellectual people. The Romans were a, a cultural people. But the Romans could be a cruel and brutal people, too. These are the people that Paul is writing to. At least this is the culture that Paul is writing to. I'm not saying the individual Christians were that way in that culture. During this period of time, Roman leadership was an embarrassment to most Romans. Most Romans hated Nero, but there was very little they could do about it because of the system of tyranny that was set up. Now, as to the founding of the Church of Rome, we actually know very little. Uh, according to Ambrosiaster, who is a church father who lived in the 4th century, an apostle did not found the Church of Rome, thus discrediting the Roman Catholic claim that Peter had founded the church. And I don't believe Peter founded the church either for these reasons. There's no credible evidence that Peter went to Rome until around 62 A.D., and Romans was written in the winter of 56 to 57. Peter was at the Jerusalem Council in 49, and there's no indication that Peter had been to Rome or was even going to Rome at that time. Now, Paul reported about his work amongst the Gentiles, but Peter didn't say anything at that time of that he had been working with the Gentiles. Paul doesn't mention Peter by name in the epistle to the Romans. He surely would have if this church was founded by Peter or if Peter was there at the time. Some people think that Paul and Peter had this big animosity between them, and it's, it just doesn't hold water scripturally. Yes, Paul had to correct Peter in the book of Galatians over some of his behavior, but, but Paul respected Peter. He showed that on many occasions. And if Peter would have been there in this list that we'll see in Romans chapter 16, Paul would have certainly mentioned Peter. Uh, nor does Luke mention Peter in Acts, in the account of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So, uh, Peter didn't found the church at Rome, but neither did Paul. Let's see where it might have come from. It's possible that the Jews who founded the church became believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Remember, there were people from many different countries at Pentecost on that day. But most New Testament scholars are skeptical of that view since they wouldn't have had very much time to grasp any biblical truth to go back and start a new work there. So most feel like that that is not the case. The best option as to the founding of the church at Rome is that it was planted by some of Paul's own converts. Remember those Roman roads? Paul had converts all throughout the empire. Not only did he lead them to Christ, but he also taught them after he led them. And that's what a good missionary will do. A good missionary doesn't just give them the gospel and then boot them out. A good missionary will give them the gospel and make sure they have a basic grasp of at least essential biblical truths. And so that's what Paul does. And so I believe that the church at Rome was founded by some of Paul's converts. It fits well with Romans 15:20. If your Bibles are open, you might just have a look at that passage. That passage says that Paul did not feel called to build on another man's foundation. It's probable that some of those that... Paul had led to the Lord then and taught the word, went back to Rome and began his work. But the key to remember about this information, about the founding of the church at Rome, is that when Paul wrote Romans, he had not yet ever visited the city. He might have known some of the founders of the church, and he does. He mentions them by name. But in terms of the vast majority of the people that were in the church at Rome, Paul didn't know them. In fact, there's quite a bit of evidence that there wasn't just one local church at Rome. 
the evidence is that there were five local churches at Rome. In fact, five households were mentioned in Romans chapter 16. And so uh, Rome was a very large city. Uh, geographically, it, it was uh, fairly large and certainly had a lot of people. Some would estimate over a million people in the city of Rome in the ancient world. That's a big city in ancient times. And so um, Harold Honer, who I mentioned before, holds that rather than one large church at Rome, there were five local churches. While there has been much written about the issue of the makeup of the church at Rome, it appears as though the people that Paul's writing to are primarily Gentiles, with a minority of a Jewish population in the city. There are reasons for determining that. Paul was an apostle first to the Gentiles, and he makes a point of that in this epistle. In chapter 1, verse 13, he compares the Romans with, quote, the rest of the Gentiles. In 9.3, Paul refers to Israel as my brethren and my kinsmen, rather than our brethren or our kinsmen. And also, the majority of the names that are listed in chapter 16 are either in Latin or in Greek. One objection to that, one, one might consider, and I used to hold this too, that, that the book of Romans was written primarily to Jewish believers, is that the Old Testament is quoted a lot in the book of Romans. And so one might figure, why would he quote a text that they weren't familiar with? There's a reason why he did that. I believe he does it in Galatians as well. And we know the Galatian church was full of Gentile believers. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get to some of the quotations. Now for some of the meatier items, the purpose of the book of Romans. Paul wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for several reasons. And we get these from the text itself. First, he wanted to prepare the way for his intended visit to the church. We'll see that in chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. He evidently hoped that Rome would become a base of operations and support for his missionary work in Spain and the western points of the empire that had not yet been evangelized. His advanced writing on soteriology in this letter would have provided a solid foundation for their participation in this mission. This is also a good time for me to interject this. In the scriptures, there are no such thing as meat doctrines and milk doctrines. You know, you've heard we, you know, this is a, this is, that was meaty teaching, or someone else might say, well, that was, that was kind of lightweight, that was milk teaching. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of the way those phrases are used in scripture. Every category of truth in the word has both a milk aspect to it and a meat aspect to it. Take the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. There is a milk aspect. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There are meteor aspects uh, such as uh, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, unlimited atonement, and those kind of things that are meteor aspects of the same doctrine. And so uh, Paul teaches the Romans the meat of the doctrine of soteriology in this text. And one might wonder, why would we bother studying that? We might say, well, we, we just want to apply the Word of God. We want to be good Christians. We want to love God. We want to love our neighbor. We're already saved. So why would a person who's already saved study more about salvation? I think there are several ways to answer that question, but let me let me ask that let me answer it this way by asking you something. Why would God 
reveal more about the doctrine of salvation if he didn't want us to study it. You tell me that, and then I'll tell you why we should study something like the book of Romans. You see, these are not things that are just dry, dusty theology that needs to sit on a shelf. If we're going to be serious about our Christianity, I'm not saying about our intellectual life. I'm saying if we're going to be serious about our relationship with Jesus Christ, then we should know the meatier aspects of the doctrine of soteriology. And let me tell you this, too. Once you do, you'll appreciate your salvation so much more. Once you understand the depth of God's grace then you're going to live your life a different way. So there is a reason to do this. And we might not be engaged in mass evangelism ourselves, but we are engaged in personal evangelism. And the more you know about the Word of God, and in this case the doctrine of soteriology, the more relaxed you're going to be as the Holy Spirit uses you to spread the Word of God. You won't, you won't worry about different questions coming up from different cults. You'll know the answer to it. A second reason for writing Romans was undoubtedly Paul's desire to minister to the spiritual needs of the Christians in Rome, even though they were in good condition, generally speaking, good spiritual condition. And we see that in chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. Like the church at Philippi, the church at Rome was a good church. But no church is a perfect church. And as soon as you start thinking you are, be careful because we're ready. We're we're just this close to a fall. So any church can always improve. And the, the church at Rome was certainly one of those. And that's another reason that Paul writes this. Now, by the way, remember, purpose is different from message. Right now I'm telling you why he wrote it. In a minute, we'll talk about what the message statement was. What is he saying to them? These are the reasons why he wrote it. The third reason, Paul also wrote Romans, as he did, because he was at a transition point in his ministry. As he mentioned near the end of chapter 15, his ministry in the Aegean region was solid enough that he planned to leave it and move further west into new missionary territory, namely Spain. But before he did that, he planned to visit Jerusalem, where he realized he's going to be in danger. There's a lot written about that in the book of Acts and other places, whether Paul should have done it, whether he should have listened to the prophet, or whether he should have not. If you read the text carefully, the Holy Spirit told him to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit also tells his prophet to tell him, be careful if you go to Jerusalem, because if you go, you're going to be arrested. Okay? The Holy Spirit tells him to go. The prophet comes and says, if you go, you're going to be arrested. Now, there are some that think Paul sinned by going to Jerusalem, and that's why he was arrested. That's not what the text says. I think Paul had spiritual courage by going to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be arrested because the Holy Spirit had already told him to go. But Paul, I believe, understands that when he goes back to Jerusalem, his life is going to be in danger. So before he does that, he writes Romans, and he writes it the way that he did to leave a full exposition of the gospel in good hands if his ministry did end prematurely in Jerusalem. As it turns out, it didn't. He lives another... Uh, 11 years after he writes the book of Romans. But he doesn't know that at the time. He could have been executed. We studied that concept when we looked at the first chapter of the book of Philippians. The great contribution of the letter to the body of the New Testament is its reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. How God's righteousness can become man's possession.
The book of Romans is distinctive among Paul's inspired writings in several respects. It was one of the few letters that he wrote to churches with which he had no personal dealings. Anybody know the other one? Colossians is the other book that he wrote to a church that he didn't know the people in. Paul presents here a more formal theology within a personal letter. And since Paul didn't know that many of the people in the church, although many you won't think that when we get to that list in Romans 16, you'll think he knew everybody in Rome, but really it was proportionally a fairly small amount. Romans is actually less personal than most of Paul's other epistles. This doesn't mean that, that Paul is writing a systematic theology. That's the way the book of Romans has been explained by some people. But that's not true because there are certain aspects of theology Paul doesn't cover in Romans. But the ones he covers, he covers very deeply and very seriously. Now, the message of the book of Romans, and this is, uh, all of the, I believe all of the background is important. Because as we go through a book, we need a context for it. You need to know uh, the the setting in which he writes it because it will be meaningful. Particularly in the first chapter, Paul's going to give a longer introduction to the book of Romans than he does any of his other letters. Now, can you see why? Because the people don't know him. Most of the people there don't know him. They know him by reputation. Some of the people there, some did know him, and then they would say, hey, you don't know this guy, Paul, but he's a sharp cookie. Well, now he has to introduce himself more. That's why the introduction is going to take us two or three weeks instead of just one class lesson. But now the message of the book of Romans. First message in the book of Romans. Romans reveals the tragic helplessness of the human race. No other book in the Bible looks so fearlessly into the abysmal degradation that has resulted from human sin. If you only read chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20 you would become very depressed because of the pessimism that's found in the book of Romans. But if you keep reading, if you go past that, you'll conclude even from verse 21 of chapter 3 that we have the best, most optimistic news that a person can handle. See, Paul does the type of evangelism where he makes sure that you understand you're lost before he gets you saved or before he presents the information. Some people have a problem with that. I don't. The reason is, that's the way Paul did it. Uh, you know, the, the um, Larry Moyer's bad news, good news approach. You know, I've got some bad news for you, and then I've got some great news for you as well. That was Paul's approach. That's a very biblical approach. The, the culture today doesn't want us to talk about sin, doesn't want us to talk about hell. In fact, in some churches, pastors are forbidden from giving sermons about sin or hell. Well, the Apostle Paul would have shuddered at that. Because in the book of Romans, he lets us know that, we, yes, we were lost. And he concludes Romans 3, 23, and, and says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the book of Romans, he'll tell us that the immoral Gentile needs a Savior. Then he'll tell us that the moral Gentile needs a Savior. And then finally, he'll point out that even the Jew, the people of God, even the Jew needs a Savior. And the whole world is under sin. So in the first three chapters of Romans, you're going to hear a lot about sin. And that's okay. Sin ought not to be swept under the rugs. We ought not to think of sin as something that was judged at the cross and is irrelevant today. That's not what Paul says in this book. So if you're objective, and I hope that you will be, let Paul speak to you through the Holy Spirit. There are a couple aspects of your theology that might need tweaking. 
with regard to the issues of sin. We'll see. Hopefully, maybe that'll get you to come back next week and for the next many weeks. Paul divides the ruined race into two parts. The first of these is the Gentile who have had the revelation of nature. God has given everyone, Jews and Gentiles, the opportunity of observing and concluding two things about himself, his wisdom and his power. There is nobody that is, has reached an age of accountability that's living on this planet that does not have innately or inborn in them the idea that God exists and that God is, is all-wise and that God is all-powerful. Now, they may suppress that. They have to, Paul says. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But every human being has that inborn in them. The average person, as well as the scientist, concludes that someone wise must have put the natural world together. And he must be very powerful. Nevertheless, having come to that conclusion, he turns from God to futile speculations, vile passions, unrighteous behavior, envy, murder, strife, deceit, insolence, pride, and perverted conduct. Not necessarily everyone with every one of those. But if you turn away from God, you've got to turn towards something. And that something is never good. Mankind is hopelessly religious. And if you're not going to worship the infinite personal God, the creator of the universe, you're going to worship something. So don't ever buy this business that I'm an atheist. I worship nothing. Yes, you do. An atheist worships himself, and it's called secular humanism. Everybody has a faith. Everybody's a philosopher. Everybody has a philosophy. Now, you may not be sophisticated in your philosophy, but everyone has a philosophy, and everyone is a theologian. You may not be sophisticated in your theology, but everyone has a view of God, even if the view is that God doesn't exist. That's a theology. We call it an a-theology, but it is nevertheless a view of God. The other part of the race that is ruined is the Jews. In addition to the revelation of nature, they also had the light of Scripture. Paul observes that in spite of this greater revelation and the privilege that the Jew had, the Jew ends up behaving the same way that the Gentile did. So even having the Scripture, which Paul will call an advantage, they didn't take advantage of that advantage, so it turned out not to be an advantage for them. The Jew ended up becoming a worse sinner than the Gentile. Having professed devotion to God and having claimed to be a teacher of the Gentiles because of his greater light, and talking about the Jews, the Jew disobeys God and causes the Gentiles to blaspheme his, na blaspheme his name. So the Jews, Paul says, didn't do the job. They had the revelation of God and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So he says, the Jewish person is condemned as well. And finally, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second message of the book of Romans the second major revelation, is the magnificence of the plan of salvation. So Paul doesn't just get you lost and leave you there. Francis Schaeffer was right when he said, that's cruel. If all you do in your evangelism is just chop the knees out of the philosophy that they believe at the present time and say, see, you're wrong, and turn around and walk away, you are a cruel person. Very cruel. And Paul didn't do that. He did chop the legs out of underneath the philosophy that they had, this philosophy of salvation by works. But then he gave them the gospel of grace. Anything less than that is absolute cruelty. And there are a lot of Christians that are cruel. A lot of Christians just want to win the argument and have no intention of giving them the information to get to heaven. But don't be that way. The plan of salvation centers on Jesus Christ, whom Paul introduced on the very first page of the letter. 
God declared to everyone that Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, is his son by resurrecting him. Man's relation to the plan of salvation then is threefold. It involves justification, which is the imputation of God's righteousness to the believing sinner. We'll see when we study justification that justification doesn't mean just the removal of sin. There was a, sometimes these catchphrases, uh, um, these little quick things that we say, uh, these pithy sayings can be remembered, but they're not necessarily theological and biblical. The, the, the same used to be justification meant just as though I had never sinned. Well, that's only part of it. It's not just wiping the slate clean. It's adding something. It's adding God's righteousness to you. So justification is more than just a lack of sin. It's a, there's a positive aspect to it, too. Um, there's the doctrine of sanctification. There's the doctrine of glorification, the, the perfection of God's righteousness in the sanctified sinner. In justification, God lifts the sinner into a relationship with himself that is more intimate than we would have enjoyed if we had just never sinned. There is an intimacy to Christianity that, that few of us, almost nobody, me included, totally appreciates. That's something we'll appreciate in eternity. The intimacy we have with the creator of the universe, and there's a balance that has to take place here. Some believers realize this at some level. And say, I, am, I have a personal relationship with God. He's my buddy. And therefore, I'll call him what I want to call him. I'll behave like I would with any other buddy. That's a misapplication of the fact that you have an intimate personal relationship with the God of the universe. You do have an infinite personal relationship with the God of the universe, but he's still the God of the universe. Never forget that when you're talking to him. You can have a comfort in knowing that he really cares about you that he knows all about you, and he really, really cares. But don't get on, on terms with him where you start treating him with disrespect because he really, really cares for you and have that infinite personal relationship. And that's something that Paul will talk about in this book. What did God then want us to learn from the book of Romans? First, Romans calls us to measure ourselves by divine rather than human standards. We sometimes evaluate ourselves and one another by using the criteria our age sets or that we set. Let's be frank. By the criteria that the culture sets today, I think every one of you is, is as Christ-like as you can possibly be. All of us are. By the criteria of the culture. Now, by the criteria of the Word of God, that evaluation might be different. And by the way, it doesn't matter what I think of you. It's what, how God evaluates you. But sometimes we fool ourselves, since we live in a pretty rotten culture, we say, I'm not as bad as them, so I must be doing all right. Well, not so fast, McDuff. You may or you may not be. It's, God is going to tell you in the book of Romans, through the Apostle Paul, that we measure ourselves by his standards, not by our own. So we don't get to set the standard and then say, we succeeded. That's what companies do sometimes, especially executives that want to meet their, their goals so that they can get the bonus that was set for them. They'll set the standard that they know they can meet, and then they can bonus themselves a great percentage of their salary. Well, no, this is, what, this is a case of somebody else setting the standard and say, okay, you meet what I set, then you get the bonus. God sets the standards. We don't. The standard that God sets reveals that initially we're all guilty before God. The Jew was no closer to salvation than the Gentile, even though the Jew had an advantage. And that was the revealed word of God. Second, 
The second thing that I think God wants us to learn from Romans is that God calls us to live by faith rather than by sight. Romans contrasts the futility of trying to obtain salvation by working for it with trusting God, simply believing what he has revealed as true. And there's a truth that we'll learn in the book of Romans is that in the same way that we were saved, you're also supposed to live. We were saved by faith. We're supposed to live by faith. After we're saved, there is no degree of faith that's required, particularly for salvation. It's just a little bit more faith than no faith at all. But after salvation, God would like to see a strong faith. And the book of Romans will teach us that. And third, Romans calls us to dedicate ourselves to God rather than living self-centered lives. This is a reasonable response, having received salvation. Our culture is so selfish. People are selfish in the way they drive. People are selfish in the way they stand in line or don't when they're supposed to. Uh, People are very impatient when they deal with other people. Our culture is very selfish and to a large part is very rude too. And I believe the rudeness comes from the selfishness. But Romans is going to call us to live lives that have Jesus Christ at the center rather than us at the center. And if, and if Jesus Christ is, the, is at the center, it doesn't mean you turn into a noodle. It doesn't mean you, you check your manhood at the door. None of that. But you know what you will check at the door? You'll check your rudeness. You'll check your self-centeredness. One of the reasons why our culture is so rude and self-centered is that it is an anti-Christian culture. It's a post Christian culture. We should give ourselves to God. Paul didn't say that if we fail to dedicate ourselves to God that we're unsaved. He's not going to say that in this epistle. Some have read that into it, and we'll correct that. Rather, much like he did in Philippians, he appeals to us to live lives worthy of the price that's paid for our salvation. So a message statement, and if you're writing, if you haven't written anything else and you, you want to write something, write this down as we close. The message statement of the book of Romans. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. I'll read it again. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, We should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to Him. That won't be the only time you hear that, so if you missed it, come back up after the after we're finished or wait till next time because you'll hear it again. And in conclusion, let me suggest an application then tonight from the message of Romans. And it's this. In view of the greatness of the salvation that God has provided us, as the book of Romans revealed, we, just like the Apostle Paul, have a duty to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. We have a duty to do that. It's an obligation that we have. Paul Paul said he was under compulsion to do it. 
But we do this both with our lip and with our life, both with our words and with our conduct, by explanation and by example. Our living example will reflect death to self as well as life to God. The book of Romans concludes this way, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but is now manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are appreciative of the time that we've had to come together tonight and to, to begin a glimpse into this great epistle that you inspired the Holy Spirit to write. Help us to, to focus on the words of the Apostle, understanding that they're words of yours as we study this book. Help us not just to learn the theology, but to do exactly what is said in this book, and that's to live the theology for no one's glory but your own. For that's what we seek. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.